You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. March 2020, I remember talking with my business partner about whether we should send employees to work remotely due to the threat of COVID or not. And there were really two schools of thought. One of them was that would be really stupid. There's no reason for us to do that. And the other one was if we don't do it, we're going to, you know, kill everybody because they're all going to get COVID. Well, once we ultimately did it and sent people home, everybody quickly changed their mind. Even the people who are most adamantly opposed to remote work were all of a sudden adamantly in favor of remote work and, and took the opposite position. We never need to come back to the office. Nobody ever needs to return. We can totally virtually uh, work forever indefinitely. And uh, I think we were both wrong. You know, the, the first perspective of nobody can ever work remotely, that's stupid. We need to be in the office. We're spending a bunch of money for the space. That was wrong. And the opposite of we never need to have any type of in-person activity ever, 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 no matter what, I think is a privileged and incorrect perspective. But it's been fascinating to see the the observation of my friends who have made decisions about remote work. Um, some of them have brought all of their employees back in person into the office and they've been rolling that way for three years. Some of them, they've never been remote since. I mean, I have a lot of friends who employ people, some of whom they've never met in person, many of whom they've never met in person. And so I think we're still in the figure it out phase uh, of the appropriate work dynamics. I don't know that we're going to figure it out. Maybe it's a constant evolution of ideas. Maybe it's constantly millions and millions of companies globally experimenting and trying to find that exact correct balance that works for them. But we made a big step on decidedly in trying to figure it out. And we did that by inviting our guest Frank Cottle on the show today. Frank is a timeless futurist with primary expertise on the future of work. He's the founder and CEO of Alliance Virtual Offices, a pioneering company that revolutionizes the way we perceive workspaces, offering innovative virtual office solutions. He's also deeply involved in the allwork.space platform where he shares about the evolving landscape of flexible workspaces and the latest trends in the ever-evolving landscape of work. What Brake's company does is they help innovative businesses scale faster with higher quality flexible workspaces, market-leading tech infrastructure, and professional receptionist support. So he helps companies build their perfect virtual office from a network of 1,400 global locations that they have, allows people to work flexibly, save money with a recognized business address, and create a global company from day one. So the really transformative work that Frank's company has done in the landscape of work globally. So it's a real treat to be able to talk with him, how he built a business, what he thinks the trends are in commercial real estate and in remote work, what a business leaders need to look out for in the future, how to be a business leader in a remote work environment. Frank has a lot of wisdom. He has a lot of good insights, so stick around. I think you're going to learn something. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. What I'm mostly curious about is how do you get into that space? I mean, what was your journey in life like before Alliance and what led you to Alliance? Okay, well, I uh, started my career in 1969-70, uh, and I actually started as a commercial diver, um, uh, working as a contractor to one of our federal agencies uh, during the Vietnam era, uh, doing what uh, was termed interesting work for a few years. Um, as a okay. contractor. Um, uh, after that, I raced yachts for almost 10 years. Uh, big sail, sailing yachts on a global basis and uh, built a, a fairly large yacht brokerage um, with five other guys. And I sold out. Uh, I made a hen and epiphany one day. I decided I'd never be an owner as long as I was a broker. And I just couldn't be a broker anymore then. 
Mm. So I decided that I wanted to go into commercial real estate. Uh, and for commercial real estate, I didn't have as much money as I needed to build big buildings. So I came from, come from a ranching and farming family, and so I decided I would land bank. And what that means is you buy the biggest piece of dirt possible, and you hold it for as long as possible. And the way that I decided to do that was to build a small building that would generate the greatest amount of revenue per square foot. And that happened to be funny little things in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s called executive suites. Mm. So purpose-built buildings across the Southwest in the United States, California, Arizona, and Texas, um, in joint venture uh, with uh, Chevron Land, Mobile Land, Trammell Crow, uh, Boston Properties, Irvine Company, et cetera, um, on the land. And uh, we built these funny little executive suite buildings. We built a nice portfolio. And I sold that portfolio after I'd learned how to run them. And they were very technology-driven buildings. Um, we had a joint venture with AT&T, with Bell Labs. Uh, another joint venture with GTE. We built what were called smart parks and smart buildings back in the early 80s. Um, and uh, we sold that portfolio and then started uh, building uh, Conventional executive suites or business centers, what you'd think of as co-working centers today, between 90 and 2000. And where we built 42 buildings, we built, a, uh, after we sold that portfolio, we built another 195 centers across the United States. We were the largest private operator of what were then called business centers in the world at that time. We sold that portfolio to a private equity firm. And the reason I wanted to, in New York, a company called Frontline Capital, reason I wanted to sell was I made the decision I wanted to own the customer, but not the facility. Okay. Tell me, tell me more about that. Well, we created a model. At, at that time, uh, the travel industry, and I, I had owned another company in the travel industry. It was a data aggregation reporting company uh, we sold to uh, the Lufthansa Group. And um, um, everything was changing at that time, becoming web-driven. And uh, we looked at the travel industry where we had experience, and we said, wait a second. Marriott owns the hotel, but Expedia owns the customer. What's up with this yeah, model? okay, because they're, they're the ones directing traffic. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I looked at that model and said, well, and it's the and it's the same in the the flexible workspace industry. If you look at IWG or Regis or Spaces or WeWork by comparison to us today, and that that's a, a, a good analogy. If Regis wants to get five hundred new customers, they have to build a new facility. Yeah, and that's very capital intensive and v puts a ton of debt on their balance sheet, and it's very limiting. Where do you build it? You have to find it. You have to build it. You have to fill it. You have to equip it. You have to put all the tenant improvements in it, all the furniture, fixture, and equipment, et cetera, for 500 clients. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm directing traffic, and I own the client, but not the facility. All I have to do is pay Google or my marketing department about $185 a client to capture the client into my system and then push that over to on, a, on an aggregation split basis, a center. So I have infinite inventory in our model um, <clears throat> with no capital uh, requirement for expansion, except our marketing co uh, costs. So if you look at a modern version of that today, you would say, hmm, sounds like Airbnb. Yeah. Well, we, started, we started doing that uh, in 2000 uh, uh, and built a inventory, a global inventory model and then built um, the aggregation model, the, the business model uh, for the industry. And today we service about 180,000 clients um, uh, across 54 countries. Uh, and it's been quite a, uh, a interesting journey, a lot of fun, just a lot of fun. So when you started, you, you were, it sounded like you were really just trying to find a way to lessen the cost of holding on to land long term. Initially, yes, land banking. Think about it. We're in Texas. How's a farmer yeah. get rich? Well, it's not from growing wheat. Farmer yeah. gets rich by having a piece of dirt, by having a piece of land in the path of progress, and he grows wheat until he can sell it to a building uh, property developer and they build houses on it. And that's yes. when the farmer gets rich. 
So the same thing is true in commercial officing. If you take a piece of property with an added entitlement, so you build, take a piece of property on the edge of a large master plan development that's not quite mature yet. The development maybe needs five or seven years before it matures. And you build a small building on that piece of property, though. But you have entitlement to build eight or ten times that size of building based on yeah. the piece of land. So you've got the rights to build. So that's land banking, if you will. And you use the smaller building to hold the land until the land is valuable enough and mature enough that you can build a mid or a high-rise building on it. So the 42 projects that we played with across our, our spectrum, there's only two of them that even exist today. Every one of them has been scraped, and there's a mid- or high-rise building on the land now. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, now, we didn't do that. We sold it to the guys that did that, to the, to, sure. to the guys that put their buildings on. But we banked the land, if you will, uh, so that we could get that extra value out of the project. Um, so that's what started us off, and we decided that the flexible workspace model back in the early 80s when, when uh, people didn't really understand what it was would ultimately drive the future of work. And if you think about it, companies today, your audience, historically, all companies have needed a good product that attracted customers and capital for expansion. If you had those two things mm -hmm. and you were smart, you could build a solid company. Today, let's look at the pandemic as an example um, of, a, of a requirement. The one component you have to have today, add today to that customer and capital, is flexibility. If you aren't flexible and don't have the capacity to, in a Darwinian sense, react quickly to the changes in your environment, you won't survive, or at least you won't survive against your, your competitors that do. And so we've added a flexibility component to the commercial real estate world today through our virtual officing structure where we can open an office. You can open an office hangar for your company. I'll give you 10 countries, 10 cities, and 10 countries in 10 minutes. I can open offices for you. Um, or you can have clerical, secretarial, administrative support, uh, address, commercial address, utilization, everything you need to run a business in. Paris or London, anywhere you want in the world. Yeah. In 10 minutes, and it'll cost you about $75 per office per month. That's it. Because it's a pretty good deal. You're buying absolute utilization yeah. on a virtual basis as opposed to the physical space. And we have the inventory model that, that allows to, that to so happen. Can, can you explain that again? You're, you're buying the, the absolute utilization on a vertical basis, is that what you said? A virtual basis. Virtual, virtual basis. Okay. Th think in terms of every major company in the pandemic had to adjust to a remote work model. Yeah. Overall. Well, remote work is has been around for decades and decades, but you know, it got a lot of a lot of coverage during the pandemic. And all that really means is that somebody is sitting like I am, I'm at my home office, uh, which is down the hill from you, you're in, in uh, Ridgely, I think, and I'm over at Miravista. Yeah, uh, so I'm, both I'm in just Fort Worth. At, so I'm in my home office today, uh, speaking to you, and uh, later on this afternoon, I'll be in a downtown office in Fort Worth, and tomorrow I'll be in my office in Dallas. Yesterday, I was in my office in Las Vegas. Okay, so we all move around. We're all digital nomads today, or local nomads, lomads, if you will. Um, to where we work in a multiple a multitude of places. Well, if you have a permanent full-time space, especially if you're a company that has 10,000 employees and you put permanent full-time yeah. space all of them, they're moving around. They're only utiliz the utilization of a Fortune 1000 company space from an officing port point of view before the pandemic was only 42% effective. So... 60 some percent of the time during, and this is during working hours, not, not counting weekends and, and evenings is during working hours. So if you think about the wasted asset going on, uh, right now, more and more people are working virtually and setting up the capacity to check in and out of an office space on demand, as opposed to physically tying up that space overall. And a good example of that 
the the outcome of that right now is uh, New York City has almost a 50% vacancy factor rolling up in commercial office space because everybody is working. Where does that 50% vacancy in New York City rank as far as all-time down markets in commercial real estate? Worst ever. Worst Worst ever. ever. Worst ever. And what you'll see is a repurposing of that space ultimately. It'll flux around and and, and there's a lot of different... Yeah, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, you'll see the repurposing of that space, and, and and take New York City as a good example, or London as another good example. These are cities, large cities, that literally import the workers every day through a commuting system. Okay. Okay, people come in on the trains, they come in on the subways, they come in on the cars, whenever. They're, you're importing the workers, and at night the workers go home to their, uh, to their residence. And the reason they do that isn't because they don't like New York City, it's because they can't afford it. Yeah. So what will happen ultimately, and we're starting to see this in buildings now, is as a building gets beyond about 20 to 30% vacancy on a commercial basis, 20% even, it's not sustainable. You, you can't afford to build, you can't afford to hold a building like that. So you repurpose the building. You take your 50 floors and the top 10 floors become residential, and now you only have you know, uh, 40 floors you have to deal with commercially. Maybe your bottom five floors become retail. Um, You you start reshaping the way the building is. And when you repurpose a building and add residential to a commercial building, which is very expensive, but no, not as expensive as building the building in the first place. Um, Now you've got new inventory of residential and that lowers the cost of living so people can live and work in the city instead of work in the city and live where some somewhere else. And this is what's beginning to happen all over in, in a lot of major cities worldwide. Yeah. So ultimately, I mean, that sounds like a real positive change for those cities if more people are able to live and work and not have to stress the public transit system and not spend two hours every morning and evening in the train. I met a couple um Back in June, that lived their entire working lives in New York City, and they told me they each took a two-hour train ride yep. in the morning and at night. And I thought that's that's I can't be worth it. New York City can't be that cool. It's not. No city is. It's, no, it can't no. be that cool. Well, you know, and it's funny. The big return to office after the pandemic. The big hey guys, you got to come back to the office <laughs> and fill the that we're paying for, right? Uh, yeah, that's what corporate leaders are saying, um, and, and particularly large financial institutions or and, and large tech companies, or a lot of them are saying this. No one minds being in the office with their coworkers. It's good. No one, yeah. no one minds that. It it's great. It, it it'd be great if we were sitting across the desk from each other instead of working remotely as we are right now. That'd be better. Okay, but no one wants that damn to commute. Yeah. And they're willing now, that, now that, you know, it takes a certain period of time for people to change habits. But we had basically a 18 to 24 month period during the pandemic, during which people reset all of their habits. And a lot of people also reset their values. If you your dad commuted two hours to New York, and that's what he said he had to do to support the family, and you live in the same place, that's what you do. Well, it becomes a habitual thing. But yeah. people change habits, and they said, no, 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 no. Uh, this isn't worth it to me anymore. And so as we look at technology and, and what's happening, you've got a combination of people, place, and technology, and that in- intersection of those three things together is what creates uh, uh, the environment that we work in today. Um, and it doesn't have borders. It, 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 it doesn't have limitations. It is a lot more flexible. And it ultimately is a lot lower cost model to support. Um, it deals with a lot of environmental issues. Hey, when was our pollution levels in major cities the lowest it's ever been in the last 50 years during the pandemic? Why? Yeah. There weren't commuters going in and out. It was you could look at heat maps and uh, maps from space, looking at cities, and you could look at before, during, and after, and you could just see just pollution go down, and now pollution starting to creep back up. 
everywhere. Okay, but you can see this period when it was just nil by comparison because of the differences of activity. So if you scope all of that out and think about the future of work and where it should be going, um, it's not 100% remote. People talk about hybrid officing. Um, that's a little of this, a little of that. And there are three workplaces, downtown to the central office, your home, and then whatever third workplace, whether it be a co-working center, a virtual office, uh, uh, a coffee shop, a Starbucks, there's this third workplace that has evolved uh, because not everybody's home is suitable for work also. Um, yeah. May not have space, may have distractions, um, any number of things. Every it felt like remote work was really a like a rare thing pre twenty twenty. You know, if I met somebody who said they worked from so, home, I had a lot of questions. Wow, what do you do? How does that work? Do you, do you, you know, do you just sleep in and work whatever you want? What is it? What's going on? It was like this foreign concept. And then everybody, or you know, at least every white collar employee was working remote all of a sudden, almost overnight in March of twenty twenty. And now people are starting to come back. I think there was a brief period where it felt like the narrative was remote work is going to be the future. Nobody's ever going to go into the office again, burn those buildings down, turn them into apartment complexes. We don't need it. And there was like a, a little bit of an overcorrection. And and now maybe we're more moderated, but still some companies have come out and fully rejected remote work. Like, you know, uh, Tesla, SpaceX, all the Elon Musk companies have said, hey, no, we're not going to do any remote work at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, Elon Musk says that, but he can't hire programmers that he wants to unless he gives them a remote work or a flex, what they call, not remote work, but a flexible workplace option. Okay. Okay. So, and that was going on before the pandemic, too. Uh, in 2016-17, the big tech companies realized, hey, we want to get the best, the best programmers, okay? Uh, and we want to move them. The smartest guy happens to be in Texas, where there's a certain cost of living, and we want to move him to Silicon Valley, where the cost of living for housing is three times, four times the cost in Texas. Is that person going to move their family? No. So if they wanted the best and the brightest, even then, Companies were coming up with flexible workplace hiring models, and it was yeah. primarily focused around technology uh, and income earning positions. If you've got a hotshot salesman, do you really care whether they live in Michigan or in come into your office every day? Not if they're producing revenue. You do exactly. not care. So those two sectors seem to to lead on, and every company, every major company, was creating flexible workplace programs for their HR departments. The pandemic comes along, instead of thinking about it and having 5% of the people or 10% of the people in that category, all of a sudden they had 70% of the people in that category. They didn't have a choice. Now yeah. they're figuring out where's the balance between it. And certain positions, uh, creative positions as an example, that where you're working in a team, let's say a marketing team or an advertising team, you work really well around a uh, conference room board doing a lot of spaghetti on the wall sessions mm -hmm. that are to do remotely. But you don't do those sessions all day long every day, do you? No. You have the got big customer meeting on Thursdays and you've got to do this and that. So you maybe have to come in on Wednesday and Thursday. But on Monday and Tuesday, you don't have to. And on Friday, you're going to take off early anyway, so you might as well do whatever. So everyone has to figure out how to adjust. And some of the big institutions say, well, we need everybody together for so that our we can preserve our culture. And I would say, you know what? If your company culture is so weak that you all have to sit in the same room and sing Kumbaya together, then you didn't have a culture to begin with. That's a really pretty did. good point. It, I think so, it, that type of response of everybody's going to be here, we're going to go completely back to normal. Um, I won't say normal. in every case, but in what is normal? And well, back, I, I, the, yeah, I think the, most you own words, and I'm going to interrupt you for a second. But you said I could do. <laughs> I did give word. you permission before we started. You could interrupt me. Yeah, 
what you what you just said back to normal is that retrograde or what yeah it may be a little bit be progressive you have to look to the future of work not the past of work any company that says well we're going to do it the way the same way we always did it uh buggy whips yeah. in the fort uh you know the early 1900s yeah we're going to produce buggy whips instead of windshield wipers yeah that's smart so there is no back to normal that will work there is no new normal if it's new it's not normal it's new and you've got to embrace it every day you have to change and you have to adjust you have to move forward find a better way to do things not the same way you always did it you you and have to do I, that work where you will not succeed in business and you won't so succeed what, in any what ways do you think work uh the landscape what was the last large-scale change in the landscape of work yeah culturally on a generational basis millennials 2008 uh, um, um the millennial um uh, a group maybe even yourself starts advancing into business right in the middle of, a, of what becomes a, uh, a a recessionary period. We have, we have a big, big financial crisis period. And that denied a generation of people coming in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, the opportunity to find good jobs, to find things, that were allowing them to do what they were just gotten out of college and were educated to do. And so a whole generation sat around for two or three or four years trying to figure out how to react to this recessionary environment. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the last thing before the pandemic that caused people to reflect how they wanted to work, what their values yeah. going to be, what was necessary for them to find fulfillment overall. And if you look at one of the, uh, a number that is telling and as it relates to that, that entire generation got, has got, gotten married five to seven years later than previous generation. So it, it, it was a period where people were very unsettled as to their values, what they wanted to do, how they wanted to accomplish it. And there was an economic environment that didn't allow them the opportunities they thought they would have. Yeah. They thought they'd have, and then all of a sudden they figure, find out, you know, geez, I got college, I got this job, the job's gone. What am I going to do? Shit. I'm living in the, my mother's basement. And that was a, that was a, a very telling structure for a, a whole generation of workers. Sure. There's this recognition that, default way of living to say, Hey, I'm going to simply adopt my parents' values and go forward and try to mirror their level of success that they instantly That'll, realize that's not going to work for them. And yeah, the pandemic, complete. um, made us realize that for a lot of things, remote work included, but also values say, Oh wait, what we were doing that the kind of autopilot way of living. Um, now this black swan event has forced us to re- reconsider what, what we had put on autopilot. And I think you're, you know, it seems right to me that remote work was something that we, I know I didn't really consider it. Um, I, I didn't have any employees that worked remotely pre-pandemic. I had employees that might have, that had the flexibility, you know, the sales team would be able to be flexible and say, okay, you can go, who cares if you come in today? Um, as long as you're hitting your numbers, I don't really care where you are. But beyond the sales guys... Uh, you know, nobody even thought to ask <laughs> if they could work remote. Uh, it, it was, you know, a funny thing is we had a satellite office for years in a, in a city that was an hour and a half drive from Fort Worth, Stephenville, Texas, you know, you, you'll know where that is. And we had several employees who worked there. None of them really worked collaboratively. Like none of them were in the same department. There was no leader of that office. So there wasn't like a, there was no sales person working out of that office. There was no advisor working out, nothing. But we just kept going for year after year saying, oh, y'all should all show up to this office and work together. And that was the expectation. None of them asked to work from home and we never offered. And then 
2020 happens, we go, why are obviously stay at home? <laughs> obviously, there's no reason for y'all to go into this physical location as this disjointed group of people who happen to work at the same company. Stay home. And it worked a lot better. Where I grapple as a leader is, I mean, we have a, a, a fully remote team at Decidedly, but I find a lot of challenges as a leader to connect in the same way that I would be able to if people were in person. And and the the remote work evangelists, of which I think you're one of the most outspoken leaders, um, will say, oh, but you're, you know, you, you can overcome that. Like, you're just not doing it right. There's you know, there's something you're missing. It's, it's an easy fix and they always have some sort of solution. And I'm willing to accept that there may be solutions to all of these leadership challenges, but I want some recognition that it's, it's a little bit harder. It feels much harder to lead a remote (laughs) team than, than to be able to have a boardroom and say, Hey, we're all sitting here and I can have physical connection. Yeah. I, I won't say it's harder, but I will say it is different. It, it absolutely is different, and different is harder until you learn different. Um, okay. I'll use today. Um, uh, your um, team uh, was dealing with one of our marketing people to set up this interview. Yeah. Do you, any idea where that marketing person was? No. Nairobi, Kenya. Oh, ah, okay. Okay. A very talented young lady that we happened to find through a search on Indeed when we were hiring last year. And we thought, you know what? This is the best person we can find. It doesn't matter where she is. It's the best person we can find. Education, background, experience, etc. So we sure. have, Okay. My head of marketing globally is in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm in Texas. My corporate offices are in Las Vegas. Uh, our primary service and sales departments are in uh, Monterey and Mexico, and I've got offices in London, Paris, Amsterdam, Dubai, et cetera, where we all have people. It doesn't really matter, but you have to manage differently. You can't do the back to normal, the way I used to manage, structure and expect it to work. You've got to manage differently. Sure. And part of that management is bringing people together so that they're comfortable working at distance and remotely. Um, And so you do bring people together, but you bring them together for relationship structures so that your office in Ridgelia can work with your office in Stephenville and and, and back and forth um, with comfort because you, you all got together every quarter or twice a year or when whatever on a regular basis to do certain things together here humans are like that we want to know each other uh, overall on the other hand when you're dealing with remote workers and i'm not not a uh, we're in the virtual officing business so we we like remote work and it's it's obviously a boon to our business sure. but, but uh, the the reality is that we do like human beings are gregarious. We like to be around other human beings. Um, so you set up clusters, you set up teams and crews, we call them in our, in our company that do work together and you, you just learn how to do it. And I have two or three people in our company that I work with almost every day that I have never met. And yet we're yeah. very close on a personal belt level because just because you're not sitting across the table from somebody doesn't mean you can ha- can't have a real conversation. It does doesn't mean that that you can't talk about the same things you would talk about over a cup of co- coffee. Uh, in a, it, uh, overall, and what we found as in as we study this is that if I take two teams and I and one meets every day in a boardroom to do something and I take another team and they meet in the boardroom once a week and the rest of the time they're working in maybe a small crew uh, together on a third workplace they'll meet in a coffee shop or a co-working center or something maybe they've got a virtual office through us and, and they're meeting that way and then they other two days of the week they're working by themselves and I give both those teams an objective the remote team will do it first they'll do it faster and they'll do it better. The product, really, what do you attribute that to? Well, the productivity level, if, if you and I are in a board meeting, we're both outgoing people. 
we're at a board meeting and there's 10 people around the table and there's another eight people and maybe we're not the leaders. Maybe we're just one of the attendees. We're outgoing. Hey, I'm going to stand up and say, this is my idea. And you're going to say, no, 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 Frank, I don't think that's right. And six more people are going to be quiet. Probably four of those six people are more productive than we are. But we get the attention. The boss sees us. We get the attention. We force it. We're aggressive. We're climbers. We're moving forward. But the actual most productive person is the quiet one sometimes. And so if you let those people and you, you gauge people on what they actually produce versus how clever they are in a meeting or how well-dressed they show up for the company's image or these sorts of things, but just what they really produce, you'll find that you have an entirely different mix going on inside of your company and you can become much more productive. Mm. So it kind of neutralizes some of the soft skills that yeah. allow people to get ahead that don't actually improve the company's bottom line. Well, just not just the soft skills, but the tall skills. All right. I've not heard this phrase before. The, the tall skill. Okay. Uh, the, the senior sale, if, if you look at the senior sales guys, and I'm saying guys because they usually yeah. are, most companies, they're over six foot tall. Yeah. The sales guys are tall. Okay. The sales guys are tall. Yeah. So okay. certain skills, the tall skills, the handsome skills, the well-dressed skills, the loud skills, these are all skills that people bring to a meeting to promote themselves in some way much to do with what they actually accomplish for work. Okay. And the perfect thing is the company that used to hire the college jock that was really big on the team and they make him into an insurance salesman because yeah. he, he's I know lots big, of those guys. Uh, I, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, th this is, I, I know I'm picking on certain people here, but, but I, hear, I get you. Necessarily the best person, but that's the one that. Well, I, you know what, I, I think they probably are the best person in a world where you can take people out to lunch and go golfing, because being tall helps when you can notice someone's tall. Well, it, it helps when you are physically in front of someone because, for example, most of, I think it's something like ninety-five percent of our presidential elections the taller man has won in the general yeah. election. Yeah. And so height matters in the way that we view someone's leadership ability and competency. Um, I mean, we're literally and figuratively looking up to them. So it, it, it makes a difference. But on Zoom, we're all the same height. Right. So I, I wouldn't say that, I don't know that I could agree that they are useless characteristics. I think that pre-pandemic, pre-virtual work, it probably was a useful recruiting tactic to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna try to find a sales guy that's over six foot tall. He's gonna have an easier time being a sales guy." Yeah, I I, I, I won't argue that one way or the other. And I'm five eleven, so I'm not in the I'm not in the club. I'm not defending my own right now. <laughs> six three, so I am. Uh, <laughs> All right. The the um, I, I'm I'm not um, gonna suggest that. Um, all I'm going to, all I am going to suggest is that oftentimes your most productive people are not when you're in a board meeting, that everybody's in the meeting together environment, that the, the most outspoken or the people that get the attention aren't necessarily the people that when you actually settle back and do the work are the most productive. And that what companies are finding today with remote work is who actually gets stuff done? Who who can put their head down and get something done versus wave their arms and talk about it? And yeah. that is making a big difference in a lot of companies. And it's changing the way people hire. It is changing the way people recruit and the way that people not just manage, but the way people review performance. All of that is adjusting. That's not part of the going back to normal. That yeah, is part yeah, of yeah. Thing as we go forward. And when you think about it opportunistically, um, it's really good. Uh, also, there's a lot of smart people um, that aren't don't live in Silicon Valley or New York or Dallas yeah. or Houston uh, that are very, very talented, bright people. They just don't want to live in New York. Why should a company who's based in New York 
deny themselves the ability to find the best person because sure. want them physically in an office. Yeah. You know the cost of moving someone from Cincinnati to New York? You've got to pay them half again as much. You have to buy their house in Cincinnati because and 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 get find them an apartment New York. You've got to do about a whole bunch of things. Who pays for that ultimately? The shareholder. If the shareholder is paying for that, who pays for it? The consumer. Is that a good business decision or not? No. Period. We're done. Argument's yeah. over. What do you think business owners need to be on the lookout for moving forward? I think if I were to start a new company today, I would really look at, uh, I would I would understand that my company is global or international on day one. I have a, a, an employee, I have a, a, a customer, I have a, a technology, I have a service, um, a currency of some sort that I need to be considering as international. And I would look and think of myself on a global basis as opposed to purely a local basis. That's one perspective I think I would have if I were going to grow something um, uh, 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 overall. The other thing I would go for is when I hired people, uh, my primary criteria, the, the criteria would be IQ. If, if you don't find really smart people, I mean, just pure smart people, highly intelligent people, you will not have the capacity, they will not have the capacity for change and flexibility. And if you look at change and you look at the, the things we've gone through, is there anything that's slowing down in the world that you can think of? Yeah. Everything is accelerating. That means people have to have the intelligence and the capacity to deal with change on an accelerating basis going forward. And that generally means just find the smartest person you can, not the nicest or the best looking or the tallest, but just the pure smartest. And does that person have to be here? Maybe they're in Nairobi. Maybe they're in Mumbai. Maybe they're in Mexico City. Maybe they're, you're in Texas or they're in Los Angeles. Sure. They can be there. And technology has allowed us to work without borders, even though we, you know, in Texas and certainly borders are a pretty big topic. Okay. But <laughs> you're hiring people and such allows you to consider working without borders. And we have programmers in Eastern Europe. We have programmers in Latin America. We have programmers in the United States. Um, uh, so it, it, you can, you can build a team anywhere and your common language in, for that, for programmers is technology. You, 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 you that's your language is, is, is the programming language. So it, it's not that hard, but I would, I would recognize that I'm a global company on day one and I would start thinking that way and I wouldn't find limitations. I would really think in terms of flexibility and, and purely intelligence long ago I hired. Okay. Um, what do you think of the biggest mistakes that people are making or business owners are making right now w with their relationship and approach to remote work or hybrid work? I, I think that new companies are thinking, um, uh, especially companies started by, by younger, younger people today, um, are uh, much more attuned to remote work or virtual work or having an employee um, um, that's uh, on a hybrid basis as opposed to a full-time basis. And we're talking primarily tech, white collars, yeah. managed sales. Um, you know, you, you, you can't have somebody that's a, a food server work remotely. Uh, that's, that's pretty obvious. Um, uh, and I think today's uh, entrepreneurs, and we... Um, uh, look at a lot of, uh, uh, we're an investment company also, and we, we look at a lot of new startups uh, and see a lot of new startups because they, they buy our products. Um, uh, and how many of them say, well, I, I need a, a, a dedicated office for four people in uh, um, for worse, uh, but I need a virtual office here, here, here. And, and they, they might need one in Houston, might need one in New York, need one in London. 
um, uh, and they, they are thinking outside of geography. Geography is a constraint limited by transportation, and right now transportation, uh, getting on an airplane to do business is silly. You know, we, we've, we're all past that. And I know I had my first video conferencing system in 83, 84, so, you know, I've always been a proponent of using this type of medium as opposed to uh, getting on a plane and uh, that's a waste of time, productivity-wise, and, and a waste of resources. A lot of companies today are comfortable in this type of environment, in a video environment. Not for everything, but for 60, 70, 80 percent of their work. And it will never be everything. You know, if you think it's everything, try and date somebody on video and get married and have a relationship. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, but you can start a relationship that way. You, know, you just can't fulfill it. You know, it, flexibility. I mean, in, in your thinking, in your hiring, in your products, in your financial structures, that's really what's necessary. And every component of your business that isn't flexible, you're going to have to get rid of if you're going to outperform your competitors. You you just have to have the capacity to, to change as fast as change is required. Uh, and if you get stuck, then somebody will be faster, better than you will. Sure. I'm a little bit more convinced uh, now that I've made the correct decision to have a remote team. Can you give me a practical tip on how to be a better leader for a remote team? Like what's one thing that I should be doing to connect with them better and lead them better? Uh, it depends on how remote they are. Uh, is a remote team a half an hour away or six times Let's say away? everybody, everybody's within a two-hour drive. If you're it comes down to time zones. Okay. Um, yeah, my we're all morning, in the same time zone. My morning this morning started in the Middle East and will end up in Australia. So I'm covering 18 time zones uh, today. Um, uh, that's a bit. I, I got to tell you, that's yeah. tough. Uh, um, but if you're all in the same time zone, uh, one, that's a big benefit um, and in your company. Uh, that makes things much, much easier. Even if you're just in the U.S. time zones, it's much, much easier to manage remotely. And I, I think that the whole thing is you have to be as real and as authentic when you're talking to someone remotely as we are, as you would be if you were in person. You you have to learn to, to be uh, absolutely you, sometimes a little dumb, sometimes a little silly, sometimes a little authoritative. You've got to be the real person you you are, and that takes time and understanding and comfort, and it's much more comfortable uh, for the younger generation than it is for the yeah. older generation. Our Gen Z uh, generation uh, is the first total generation that are native technologists. Mm -hmm. they, they, they grew up with nothing but being surrounded by this technology that that we all use today. Everything from social media to video conferencing to, I don't know, I have a lot of young people that work for us. Most of them don't make phone calls even though they have a phone. It's all text, it's all images, it's all it's through social media. I think that's the way they're communicating. So we've got a whole new generation of communication processes coming up. And you, as a leader, you've got to be capable of managing yourself in those processes just as well as you would manage if everybody was in the same room at the same time. And no, I don't do funny dances on TikTok. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, you're but, not a, you're not exactly a social media guy, but Hey, that's okay. I know you're on LinkedIn, but, um, TikTok, no, th that's one where I've had to say, you know, I'm just not gonna, I, it, I'm not, I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> it's great. Have you ever watched them though? Um, every once in a while, yes, we have we have a team that does we have a team that does all of our social media. They they do everything from TikTok and Instagram and everything on across the full spectrum. The TikTok's spectrum. the best. It's the best one. It's, I just can't bring myself to like go out there and lip sync or dance or whatever. Well, it it's there's a lot of ways to do messaging, and you do different messaging sure. for different audiences and for different uh, uh, potential uh, customer base. Um, uh, and so, you know, we have, a, have, have people that do that and teams that do that. And a lot of it's really fun, honestly. 
Yeah. Uh, but I think to the, your question of how do you manage remotely, um, first, get, you get people together when, when you can, especially if you're in the same time zone. If, if everybody's in Texas, then you can easily get everybody together. Uh, this is, you know, uh, uh, our spread of cities, if you discount El Paso for a second, is about three and a half hours to the center of Austin and about five hours maximum between Dallas and Houston. Um, so you, you can get everybody together for any purpose you need to, mm -hmm. um, if you, if, even just if everybody drives. Uh, that's number one. And number two, get familiar and be totally comfortable with the technology and just be authentic. Just, just be who you really are. And just because you're on video doesn't mean you, you should be a different person. Yeah. I'm probably in video conferences six to seven hours a day and because that's the way I work um, uh, predominantly. Uh, and you can create relationships. Um, you used to have pen pals, right? And they would become friends for life. Yeah. So if you could do it with a pen and paper in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, can't you do it with video today? That's a, that's a really great point. I mean, video may be less than ideal or, or less connection than in person, but it's a lot better as far as a second place medium than anything we've ever had. Yes. And, and it will, it will continue to get better. Um, uh, we've been uh, looking at and playing with uh, holographic processes, uh, which is uh, available. Um, it just is it's very expensive to do. So as the costs come down, uh, you're, if you're you, talking like Star Wars, you're going to pop up from the center of the conference table. Yeah, they've got, got that our, now. Yeah, we. Oh yeah, we had our first holographic receptionist at a center that we built in 1984. Okay, and it was like it looked like a, a bad Disney thing that was a receptionist in this box thing that we built, and we had a one receptionist handling three different buildings. It uh, so. You, you can do stuff technologically, and the technology is out there. It just isn't uh, broadly adapted yet. Yeah, have, yeah. Have you put on a Quest Two or now Quest Three headset and worked in the in, in the in the metaverse at all? Um, I have. There, I have not been, but it, yeah. Virtual communities, virtual cities, virtual buildings, uh, et cetera, where everybody can come into the same structures using technology. Uh, have you seen a politician give a speech as a hologram? Uh, have you seen a rock star? Have you seen somebody bring Beethoven back to life? Yes. This is all technology that exists. It's just not yeah. existent for what you and I are doing right now, but it is, it is out there. It'll and it get will, there. Yeah. It'll be there soon to where if you want that boardroom environment, you will be able to create it. There are yeah. two or three. There are, I was saying, there are dozens and dozens of companies working on that right now. Microsoft has a very interesting product. It just costs us, you and I, it cost us maybe $150,000 a seat to, to set up. So that's not a retail product. It's a, still a yeah. beta type product. And uh, But it will be there. So flexibility, again, is the key. Pure intelligence that can adapt to these new structures. That's the key. Um, uh, those are the people that will get the money uh, from the venture capitalists, and those are the people that will outgrow the others. And I'll yeah. use you and I as an example. Let's assume that you and I were going to go to a venture capitalist. We each wanted to raise a million dollars. We each had a technology startup. And I go in there, the VC, what the first thing the VC is going to ask me, you want a million dollars, what are you going to do with the money? Mm -hmm. It's the first thing they're always going to ask you, what are you going to do with the funds? I said, well, I'm going to uh, um, get in the office and hire a receptionist, buy some furniture, um, <laughs> computers, and uh, then I'm going to hire a couple of engineers. Yeah. Uh, then guy says, thank you very much. And then you walk in there and, and, and he says, hey, Sanger, what are you going to do with the money? He said, oh, now I'm going to get a virtual office from Frank and the hire engineers. Where are you going to hire them? Don't care. Who's going to get the money? Second guy. Who's going to get it? You're going to get it. I'm not. Yeah. So 
when we think of flexibility and we think of borders and we think of anything that has to do with structure that's permanent, you are going to die. Real estate, what do we call the person that owns a building? A landlord. Landlord. Like he has a moat around it and he's got his little fiefdom and you're the serf that's paying him. Yeah. What an anachronistic concept. Yeah. What a silly thing to think of. And think of you and I again. You're the CFO and I'm the CEO just because I'm older and taller, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm, and we're walking through our building in the middle of the pandemic. We own a tech company, and it's in New York. And we yeah, have five okay. of 100,000 feet of office space that we're paying $100 a foot per year for. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're walking through that space in the middle of the pandemic. We're looking around, and it's empty. And I'm going, oh, my God, it's empty. And you say, you're the CFO. You say, hey, yeah, but, you know, the company's doing really well. We're, we're making money. We're doing really well on everything. And I, I look around, but, yeah, but the people aren't here. And you say, yeah, but we're doing really well. And then we just smile and look at each other and say, we don't need this anymore. Yeah. So we're going to turn that space to the landlord, okay? Let him worry about that space. We're not going to renew it not all of it at least, uh, in the next go around. And I'm going to take all the debt that was on my balance sheet for that space, which is about 10 times my annual cost of that space. I've got to put that as debt on my balance sheet. I'm going to convert that debt to shareholder value, and I'm going to borrow some money from the bank then for expansion instead of and carry that debt on my balance sheet instead of debt to the landlord. Yeah. Who's going to outgrow? Is Tesla going to outgrow Microsoft or Microsoft going to outgrow Tesla? Whichever one does that first is going to outgrow the other. Yeah, that makes sense. If, if they're, those aren't comparable companies, but if they're comparable companies, whoever sheds the debt from their balance sheet first and flexes faster and greater will have the capital available to them for expansion to beat their competition. Yeah. Having your name on the top of a building is no longer a status symbol. It's now a sign that says balance sheet debt. Fair enough. Thank you for coming on here, Frank, and sharing your wisdom. Before you go, we've talked about what business leaders can do, what companies can do, what startups can do in the future. What, if anything, can real estate developers do? Because the situation sounds pretty, pretty bleak for those guys. Not really. Uh, they, they just have to change their leasing model. And this is going on all over the place. Um, a big percentage of property companies that own space, when that va- space goes vacant, they're turning into flexible workspace. They're, they're instead of having 10-year leases, they're having uh, six-month to 12-month service agreements. So they're hiring yeah. flexible workspace operators or joint venturing with flexible workspace operators to come in and run one or two floors. And if you have a, a good floor in your building and you normally get X, if it's run as flex workspace because of the shared services structure, you can usually get two to two and a half times X. So you can make up for the revenue by changing your business model, and a lot of property companies are. A JLL is massive at this. A CBRE is massive at this. Uh, um, uh, um, in, in advice and in their own flexible workspace divisions, Trammell Crow has one, Heinz has one. Uh, everybody is migrating, repurposing their space to this different yeah. model. Uh, and it's that, that works. Thanks again for being here. Um, where can people connect with you and the work that you're doing on social? There's, uh, two places. Uh, first for our own virtual officing company, uh, alliancevirtualoffices.com is one for people interested in that. But if people are just interested in the future of work and flexibility in the workplace, they can go to allwork.space, allwork.space, which is a digital media company that we have. And we have our social media reach this year will be over a billion. So it, wow. it's a it, 
big publication uh, and a lot of quality content followed by um, uh, a lot of C-level folks from the Global Fortune 1000. I mean, it, it's a, it is the, well, we own the future of work as a trademark. So that tells you, you know, that we've been there a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, but th those are two good sites to follow. Uh, the uh, If you're interested in content uh, on Alliance Virtual, you don't need a virtual office, but you're interested in content, officing theories, et cetera, drop down to the blog section. You'll find a ton of content there. Perfect. Thanks so much. My biggest takeaway in talking with Frank is that the conversation that we had about going back to normal, when he kind of called me out on the comment, let's go back to normal. There is no reason that we would want to go back to what we've done in the past and whatever is new in the future cannot possibly be normal. So that entire phrase is kind of oxymoronic and, and perplexing. What we want to be doing is find the right path forward, whether that's new, old, normal, weird. We want to find the right path forward that's in alignment with our vision. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.